Well, good morning, church. My name is Stephen. I serve as the uh, church planter in residence here at the Hallows for just a few more weeks um, until uh, we are sent out from the Hallows to uh, open an extension of God's church in Federal Way. And I'm so honored to be here with you guys, uh, getting to open the word with you. Um, so today I get to continue in our sermon series uh, that's over, been over the book of Luke, and, and it's just this great story. Luke was uh, a first century doctor who was recounting the, um, the early church goings on. He was telling people so that they may believe in Jesus the story of Jesus, of his disciples, and eventually he would then write uh, as well what we call the book of Acts, which is uh, the really, truly the goings-on of the very early church, how the church formed and spread into all the world. And the, the title of our sermon series is A Story for Sinners and Sufferers. And, and today, um, maybe more than other days, I, I feel the weight of sin, but I really feel the weight of suffering. Um, and so luckily for us, this passage gives hope. There is a hope that, that the world doesn't know. Uh, there's a hope that doesn't exist outside of Jesus. And so we get to explore in chapter five, if you guys wanna start turning your Bibles there, it's in the New Testament, about three-fourths of the way through the Bible. Uh, so while you guys are turning there, I want to just ask you, have you ever heard of Hansen's disease? Hansen's disease, um, if you aren't in the medical community, you probably haven't heard of it. Uh, or if you're someone like me who's a huge nerd and I, uh, one of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called This Podcast Will Kill You. And uh, it's all about infectious disease. So like I'm super addicted to uh, infectious diseases, weirdly. Um, but if you're normal, then you may not have heard of this disease that only has about 200 cases or occurrences reported in the U.S. every year, uh, about two or three million worldwide, but if you were living in biblical times, this disease would be very prevalent, would be constantly on your mind, and would have been a death sentence. You see, the, the more common name for Hansen's disease is leprosy. And it wasn't until the 1950s that there was an effective cure, and so now, today, we have, uh, if we're, ca we're catching it early, there's really not that bad, uh, it's not a, that bad of a disease. In fact, we know that it's caused by a bacteria, actually, a very slow-growing bacteria called Mycobacterium uh, leprae, and um, it, there was a lot of misconceptions in biblical times, and all actually all throughout uh, history. There, it was thought to be extremely contagious, so contagious that people were sent away. They were ostracized from their communities. They were sent to live um, as, as, as recently as the, the 30s and 40s. Uh, there was an uh, a island in Hawaii called Molokai that was a leper colony where they would literally just, they would get the people close enough that they could swim, dump them out of the boat, and say, figure it out on the island. Like, that's what leprosy was, the truth of leprosy throughout almost all of human history. In fact, the Bible talks about leprosy quite often in the Levitical law, the book of Leviticus, where Moses was kind of uh, through, through, or God through Moses was laying down the laws for the new people. They wrote this in Leviticus chapter 13. 
uh, about what to do with someone who was leprous. It says the person who has a case of serious skin disease, leprosy, is to have his clothes torn, his hair hanging loose, and he must cover his mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean. He will remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. Now, can you imagine this life of physical and social isolation? Now, you and I might have experienced this in the last two years with, with a quarantine from the pandemic, right? Some of us, some of us more than once, um, but we had hope, right? We had an end date. We knew when we would get out. We knew that, um, you know, we could still communicate with our friends and family. We could send text messages or phone calls, and by God's grace, we had Netflix. Can I get an amen? right? Quarantine was Netflix binge-watching time. But people in biblical times would have had none of these comforts and would have no hope. And so while this may not be the most cheery or engaging way to start a sermon, I pray that it gets better for you. Today we're going to see the difference that Jesus makes in the life of a man with leprosy. So if you have your Bible, please open, turn to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to set the scene here just so you know what's going on. So Jesus' ministry is in full force now. He has been healing people, and, and the word about him has been spreading. And so crowds are beginning to gather around him. And the largest crowd to date is now surrounding Jesus. And he's, given, he's just given a discourse that we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous discourses in all of human history. It, has, uh, it, it pervades all of culture. People know the terms blessed are the meek. People know things like the Beatitudes. There are so much that we as Christ followers know in our souls that we don't actually know started in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is like really, really important. And so the, the book of Matthew, Matthew was uh, a follower of Jesus. And in his account, he tells us that this story that we're about to read out of Luke happens right after Jesus is done talking. So Luke chapter 5 verse 12 says, while he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, Luke, I said, was a, a doctor, and so he uses words to, to describe certain conditions that people in the early first century would know. And so when he says that he had leprosy all over him, we can assume a few things. First, we can assume that he's in a, an advanced state of this disease, possibly decades long. The second thing that we can uh, begin to understand is that his uh, appearance was most likely shocking. Leprosy, we so often think of as like a rotting disease. Um, I think uh, Monty Python even has a little uh, um, homage to it where people's like fingers are popping off and noses are falling off. Like that's what we think of leprosy, but that's actually not at all what leprosy is. But it, the effect of leprosy is actually just as appalling. See, it attacks the nerve endings in skin, the eyes, and in the nasal passages. And it begins to make people numb and not feel pain. So while you might think that's a great thing, the problem is, is that modern or uh, everyday mundane tasks become dangerous. 
Tending a fire, you may not realize how close you are or what you have picked up is hot and it burns your hand. And if you can't feel it, you don't tend to it and it begins to fester. As you prepare food, you may be cutting yourself small cuts, little after little. And again, you don't realize what is happening. Maybe you even don't feel the bite of a knife and you amputate yourself spontaneously. You also, if you were a leper, you would live outside of the camp, and so as you are sleeping, whether you have a tent or not, you may have critters coming in and vermin coming in and gnawing on your toes, on your nose, on your lips, on your ears, on your fingers, and you would never wake to stop it. This is a disease that as it progresses makes your appearance incredibly grotesque. So this is the state that this man is probably in. His body has been slowly deteriorating and he doesn't even know it until it's already too late. But this man had heard of a man named Jesus. A man who could heal the sick so maybe Jesus could heal him too. So I want us to imagine this scene. I told you there was a great crowd. And lepers are supposed to live outside of the city. So the fact that he was inside means he probably came in covered, trying to be nondescript. But he also knew that if he was discovered, it would mean something bad to him, and, and he probably knew the words of the Torah, which is, is the, the Hebrew Bible, and he knew the laws of the land. And so Jesus is done talking. He's just heard this great man giving this amazing discourse, and then the crowd is beginning, they're beginning to talk to each other, and you know the din of a large crowd, the murmuring of a crowd, nothing really distinct until really small you hear unclean unclean. And then you would start to hear the shouts of anger as people realize that a leper is in their midst and they start to separate and, and he's walking forward with his mouth covered, his hair loose, his, ha- his, his, uh, his clothes hanging. And he's trying to stay hidden and he's, he says a little louder, unclean unclean, and then more shouts of anger and more shouts of antagonizing, and then all of a sudden the crowd parts and the murmur stops, and you hear very clearly, unclean, unclean, because this pitiful refrain has permeated this man, and every bit of him believes he is unclean. He knows he is unclean. And so what he does is, instead of seeing Jesus face to gnarled face, he drops to his knees and he lays his head on the ground and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The verb tense shows us that he repeated it over and over again. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This man knew his plight. Jesus knew this man's plight. The theologian R. Kent Hughes describes it really well for us. He says, by Jesus' time, rabbinical teaching with its minute strictures had made matters even worse, worse than the death sentence of leprosy. 
If a leper even stuck his head inside a house, the house was pronounced unclean. It was illegal to greet a leper. Lepers had to remain at least 100 cubits, which is about half of a football field, away if they were upwind of people. Or four cubits, which is about six feet away. We know that distance very well. If downwind. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, summed it up by saying lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. Dead men walking. Indeed, to the rabbis, the cure of a leper was as difficult as raising a person from the dead. A dead man knelt before Jesus. But not just a physically dead man, a spiritually dead one as well. The cleanliness laws would have kept him from being involved in any sort of worship, which included sacrifices which were essential for the forgiveness of sin. This man, like those of us who have not chosen to put our faith in Jesus, are separated from God both physically and spiritually. Leprosy, like sin, permeates both the mind, the body, and our souls. It is a decay of a body and a soul. The first thing that we can learn from this passage is that we need to know our need. This man was painfully aware of his need for Jesus. If he ever doubted that, he need not look farther than his own gnarled hand in front of his face. He knew that his physical condition, though it would eventually cost him his life, wasn't the thing that was most pressing. He knew that his lack of access to God and God's forgiveness would seal a much greater and longer lasting death, a spiritual one. He was unclean, and his continual refrain of unclean, unclean had permeated every part of his body and soul. For him, there was no hope but Jesus. And when he goes to Jesus, he doesn't ask to be healed of his physical state. He asks to be cleansed because he knows that body and spirit are essential. For us, sin is the same way. We so often fail to realize the true hopelessness of our sin-addled state, and we so often we think we're one of two things. One, we think that we are clean enough that we don't really need the saving power of Jesus. Or two, we are so unclean that not even Jesus can save us. Both are dreadfully wrong. The complacency of our world and our pride in our own fabricated justice and value systems keep us from desperately understanding the depth of our own need. If we understood the depth of our own need, we would throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus so fast that the stench of our decaying soul couldn't catch up to us. The other side of this is that we think we are so unclean, the depths of our depravity go so deep that we fail to see the difference that Jesus could make. We assume that our crypt keeper-like appearance would force Jesus to turn away, but friends, I want to tell you that Jesus will never turn away. Jesus will never flinch at our deepest uncleanness. In fact, 
he'll do exactly what he does here in this story. In verse 13, he says this, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses has commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Jesus sees the deepest uncleanness of this man. And instead of recooling, instead of just saying you are clean, Jesus touches the man. Now, the, the, the word touches here is such a weak uh, translation of this word. Really, it should be he grasps him, almost like, uh, like he's reaching down to pull someone out of the depths of drowning. Jesus grabs this man who probably has not felt the touch of a non-leper's hand in decades. Just the touch alone would have been enough for this man to feel more love than he has felt in 20 years. But Jesus does something else. Remember, there's a crowd all around. And remember, uh, Dr. Hughes told us that even if uh, a leper had stuck his head into the doorway of a house, the entire house would be unclean. How unclean would Jesus now be? Grasping the leper. Jesus, to make this man clean, becomes unclean. Jesus switches place with the man who has need. An early church father named Paul would write about this very thing uh, in his letter to the church at Corinth. He would say this, that he, being God, made the one who did not know sin, being Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this moment, Jesus is foreshadowing the work that he would do on the cross where he would step in and take sin, grasp us like we were drowning in sin, pull us out and put himself in our place. In that moment, Jesus made a dead man come back to life. Then Jesus tells this man to go immediately to the priests. Now, if you aren't an Old Testament scholar or well-versed in the early Levitical law, which most of us are not, me included, uh, you, you wouldn't know what the process of, of being reunited with his community would be for a leper. So I'm not going to bore you uh, with the long details because there are a lot of them. If you would like to look them up, you can look in Leviticus chapter 14. But there's a couple things that happen that I really want to highlight. The first is that for the first time since this man was declared unclean, he would be able to make a sin sacrifice and be forgiven of his sin. And he knew, he knew the moment that he became clean, my sins could be forgiven again. And then we go even a step further. The command in, uh, in Leviticus is that feasts would be prepared and eight days of celebration would happen because a man who was dead had come back to life. Uh, husband and wife reunited, father and child reunited, brothers, sisters, all reunited after years and decades of being apart. Heck yeah, we're going to have a party. Eight days worth. And the final thing that I really, really like about this ceremony of becoming clean 
is that it wouldn't just be like, a, oh, okay, here you go, do go be about your life. The priest on the eighth day would take blood from one of the sacrifices and he would smear it on the right ear and the right thumb and the right toe of the, of the person being cleansed. And it was a symbolic commitment that the person would hear what God was saying, would use their hands for God's glory, and would walk in his ways. See, the Old and the New Testament are not at odds with each other as some may have you believe. They work in tandem beautifully together because when one becomes cleansed from leprosy and goes from, from physical death and spiritual death to spiritual and physical life, we now do the same thing. We go, when we accept Jesus and put our faith in him, we go from physical and spiritual death to eternal life and to life abundantly with Jesus. And we choose to do the same things. We commit to listen to God's words, to use our hands for God's glory and to walk in God's way. How beautiful it is that, that Jesus immediately tells this man, go and celebrate, go be cleansed, be forgiven, go walk in God's ways, just like he calls us when we choose to put our faith in him. What a gorgeous reflection of the work that Jesus did on the cross and the commitment that you and I, dead people, Outsiders, lepers, who have been brought to life, invited in, and cleansed from our deepest uncleanness, make when we choose to follow Jesus. But in order for us to experience this, we have to know our Savior. If we know our Savior, we can easily run to, to cling to Jesus and ask him to take away our deepest uncleanness. We can have faith like this man had. As he boldly saw Jesus healing others, he said, if Jesus can do it for them, he can do it for me. And then I love Jesus' response. Three words, I am willing. Friends, when we approach Jesus, knowing our deepest uncleanness, which is sin, he is waiting as a willing saint. Seeing our deepest inadequacies, seeing our deepest hurts, seeing our deepest uncleanness, Jesus will not flinch. He says, I am willing. There's not another God like that. There's not another truth like that. And while this truth that we call the gospel is deeply personal, it's also profoundly public. We are cleansed from our sin and brought from death to life so that we might live eternally with Jesus and be saved. But our job is far from over. To grasp fully what we need to learn from this story, we have to see what everyone else's response was to what happened. And we see that in verse 15. It says, but the news about him spread even more and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their own sickness. Our story is to be used for his glory. If our job was done the moment that we were saved, then we would be blinked out of existence. We would go to be with Jesus and be forever. Be like Thanos style, right? Boom, done. 
but we're still here because we have a purpose. And that purpose is laid out for us by Jesus in his last words here on earth. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our purpose here on earth is to use our stories to show how a spiritual leper can become clean. Our purpose here on earth is to seek the outsider and invite them in and to teach the walking dead what it means to have new life in Christ. We have to know our purpose. Our world is full of those suffering the leprosy of sin. And while there are hundreds of analogies and ways we can, can put sin and leprosy side by side, I think the most jarring is leprosy's ability and sin's ability to make us numb. Things that we were once so careful and diligent to avoid, lying, lust, gossip, addiction. Slowly over time, sin begins to numb us to those self-inflicted wounds, and we don't even realize what is happening until we have amputated something that we never meant to. And then we hold our hand in front of our face and realize something is missing. Yesterday morning, I woke up to a missed call from my dad. He asked me to call him. And he told me my brother Alex had died of an overdose. This sin of addiction had taken his life. I promise you that the first time Alex shot up, he didn't imagine dying on a couch. I can promise you that the first time he was invited to do something illicit, that it wasn't the thought, eventually this is going to cost me. It was small things after one after another until it became so mundane that he wasn't even paying attention and something he had done hundreds of times finally cost him. And at 27 years old, a man who didn't even get to meet his niece is gone. Because sin makes us numb, and there is a world living, a world full of walking wounded, of walking dead, who are needing to know our Savior. And that's why our purpose is so important. Paul would write to the church at Rome. He would say, how can they know if they do not hear? And how can they hear if we do not tell them? Jesus doesn't need you or me to draw people to himself, but he sure does use us. And so if we know our need and we know our Savior, we've got to know our purpose. Because, guys, it is not just a nice thing. It's essential. Because there are people who are losing their lives to mundane tasks that they've done over and over and over again. Let me tell you, we're not immune from this. You all know what has happened to church leaders and pastors all over the world. And I promise you, the first time that they had a conversation with a woman that was inappropriate, the first time that they had a drink about, the first time, whatever it is, that ended up causing their downfall, I promise you, 
They were aware that maybe this isn't what I should be doing, but as sin numbed them, eventually we find ourselves in a place where we're costing ourselves. Only by continuously knowing our need for Jesus and the knowing Jesus' willingness to save can we know our purpose and can we begin to help save us from harm. It's so essential. And this charge to go into all the world and make disciples is a big one. It's hard. We don't have to go very far outside our front door to see people who are walking wounded. We don't have to think very hard to think about someone who doesn't know Jesus, especially here. And that can be exhausting. That can feel like a weight that we cannot bear. And and I'll, I'll tell you guys, that was a weight that Jesus felt as well. We see that in the last verse of this passage. Verse 16 says this, Yet he often withdrew to deserted places, and he prayed. Jesus, surrounded by so much hurt and so much sickness and so much need, knew his limits. So we need to know our limits too. Jesus needed time to pray and rest and recalibrate. We see Jesus doing this time and time again. He goes away to commune with the Father and to rest his earthly body. But you and I are so very quick to eliminate those things in our lives. Rest isn't a suggestion, friends. It's a command. You see, the Sabbath laws weren't for God. He doesn't need us to put aside a day to worship him because our entire lives are one big movement of worship towards him. He gave us a Sabbath day, a day to do nothing so that we would rest. If you know anything about sheep, I know very little, but one thing I do, I've learned in my study is that sheep, when driven by a shepherd or driven by fear or driven by whatever, will literally go until they die. Their heart will explode, their lungs will stop working, and they will drop dead. And so when the psalmist writes in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd and he makes me lie down in green pastures, it is because the shepherd knows that the sheep need a break. Rest isn't a suggestion, it's a command. It's a command. Rest allows us to breathe. Rest allows us to recalibrate. Rest allows us to remember that we are not the hero of the story, that Jesus is. And our friends and our family and our spouses and our kids and our jobs all need to remember that as well, that we are not the hero of the story. Rest allows them to see that as well. Though these things need us, our family, our spouses, our kids, our jobs, If we don't rest, we won't be there very long. Rest is kind of like putting gas in your car. If you're not doing it, eventually you're just going to stop. The other side of that, though, is not just rest. It's it's prayer, right? And prayer has to be constant. Just as we're constantly putting gas in our car, just as we're constantly needing more and more of that, we need more prayer and more rest. 
Talking to God helps us to cast our cares and our burdens on him. It allows us to recognize who he is, healer, redeemer, life giver, and who we are, chosen, loved, but soldiers in a spiritual war. But we also must listen in these moments of prayer. It can't just be about us talking. We have to listen to know where God is leading, to hear his truth wash over us, or to hear his correction from a loving father and a good shepherd. We have to praise him, to thank him, to intercede on behalf of others, and to fight the powers of this world. Guys, prayer is essential. We cannot save ourselves. And prayer helps us to recalibrate on that fact. Paul Miller, who's the executive director of See Jesus, which is a global discipling initiative, put it this way. If you're not praying, then you're quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all that you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy to pray. But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how tired you are, you will find the time. Just like we can't cleanse ourselves, we can't sustain ourselves either. In order for us to know our need, to know our Savior, and to know our purpose, we must know our limits and lead into constant prayer, rest, and then in the last piece of this is occasional solitude. Solitude's not something we enjoy in our culture. Definitely not me. A lot of you may love to go outdoors and be away from things. On the back of my phone, there's a sticker that says indoorsy, not outdoorsy. I am an indoorsy kind of guy. So solitude is one of those things that I need to work on pretty, pretty badly. Solitude I see kind of like an oil change. It's really easy to neglect until your engine seizes up. It's really easy to just keep going and say, I'll do it eventually. I'll get there sometime. I'll get, you know, it may just take too long or I'm too busy or whatever. But eventually, the way your engine works is lubricating those pistons that go up and down. And eventually that oil is no longer there and your engine just stops working. It's the same with us. I don't know how long it's been, maybe since you got some solitude, but I promise you at some point, you're gonna need it. Because Jesus did. And unless we think we're a little bit better than Jesus, the good news for sinners and sufferers like you and me is that Jesus came willingly to cleanse us from our deepest uncleanness, which is sin. And he took our place as unclean in order for the sins of the world to be taken away. And this story that we just read is Jesus beautifully modeling what it looks like to know our need, to know our Savior, and to know our purpose because of the work that he has done, but also to know our limits. Know when prayer and rest and solitude is needed.